This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. This is Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. Today on the show, Vanuatu hopes its bid to get climate change to the world's highest court will get up this week. Amongst many other Pacific Island countries, we're so vulnerable. And it's about our survival, it's about our livelihood, it's about the next generation. And global scrutiny of the social media app TikTok is on the rise with fears data could be shared with the Chinese government. So what does it mean for Pacific users? And within the Pacific, it's not seen as a matter of geostrategic contention. It's seen as another platform for people to express themselves. And could an alien object have landed in PNG in 2014? One Harvard physicist believes so and hopes to recover it. We're planning an expedition that will cost one and a half million dollars. We are developing the machinery and we know where to go and it will take a couple of weeks and we just hope to find some small fragments. All that and more today on the show. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan. So glad to have your company. First, a crisis at an iconic Papua New Guinean food producer is shining a light on the wider problems businesses are facing there. Lay Biscuit Company has shut down its operations for two weeks. It sparked a nationwide social media campaign and calls for consumers to do more to support local products. Dubrovka Volodya with more. Taking a bite to raise awareness. That's the strategy of businesswoman Sylvia Pesco, whose video has gone viral. It's a bit funny of all the things that uh, would go viral is me eating some crackers. Miss Pesco has been vocal in her support for Lay Biscuit after company chairman Ian Chow cited tough economic times as the cause for the temporary shutdown. Ian Chow was saying that basically the cost of doing business here is just getting so difficult that, you know, the easy thing and what other other businesses might choose to do is start a manufacturing abroad. And the last thing we need is to be losing more jobs. And it's not just Lay Biscuit Company and its 2,000 workers feeling the pinch. Manufacturers and consumers have been facing difficult times in PNG as the cost of living and doing business soars. Power outages, high cost for electricity and transport and high tariffs have also been blamed. Miss Pesco says next to throwing her support behind the biscuit company, she's also supporting a bigger cause. Me eating biscuits wasn't just about Lay Biscuit Company. It's not just about buying some snacks crackers. It's about everyone choosing to buy PNG made product and just making that little effort. So no, we can't solve all the problems at once, but we can do our part to spend wisely to ensure that we keep jobs in our neighbourhoods. We've never had a really big PNG-made campaign that encourages everyone and lets them know that this is the way you can choose to help. She's one of many people standing behind Lay Biscuit and other manufacturers. But has there been any push in the past to buy local in PNG? The PNG-made logo was um, created by the Manufacturers Council in the early 90s. Chase Cobell is the chief executive officer of that council. And so one of the things that they did 
trying to, um, I guess, you know, differentiate themselves was the PNG Made logo, which was created to help consumers identify those products that were made here locally, you know, by PNG for PNG. While buying PNG Made products remain popular, uptake has somewhat stalled recently. Port Moresby Chamber of Commerce President Rio Fiocco says part of the problem is an influx of fake products flooding the market. Unfortunately, we're seeing these days a rise in the importation of counterfeit products. You've got uh, crime syndicates now that are bringing in products. It appears genuine. These things are very cleverly packaged uh, and are often sold or at cheaper prices. And uh, it's only the poor consumer that when they get to use the product or taste uh, the beer and find out it's not the genuine SP beer that everyone loves. There are also many imported products on shop shelves. And that has an effect on price, with locally made biscuits selling for about one kina, but the overseas variety usually for less. Chase Covell again. You can get an imported packet of biscuits for less than the cost of the packaging material for something that's made locally. So it is a, it is a big challenge. With a high cost of living biting into household incomes, many are opting for cheaper imports. Rio Fiocco says more needs to be done to keep production lines flowing. The solution is to uh, allow companies and individuals, for that matter, to be able to at least generate power for their own uh, use, even if you don't allow them to sell the excess power back into the grid. But they should be allowed to uh, generate power because we have such uh, high sunlight in, in all of the country. It makes sense to make use of this green power that's available. In the meantime, businesswoman Sylvia Pesco has one plea. It's about choosing local products, going to the market more, and just taking that extra time. If you're going to go to the shop, have a look at the label. If there is a PNG-made brand there, just choose that first. I think it's so important to try and create more jobs at home. And given the popularity of her TikTok video, it's a message many are sharing. That was Dubrovka Volodya with that report. Pacific Beat. Vanuatu is winning support to have the International Court of Justice rule on who should be legally responsible for the harmful effects of climate change. The process starts at the UN General Assembly this week, and if backed there, it could go on to the International Court, the world's highest court, which will be asked to decide on the legal rights of those harmed by climate change. But it will need a majority of UN member countries to vote yes. Vanuatu's Foreign Minister Yotham Napat says it will be embarrassing for Australia and China if they don't back the move. We are not reinventing the wheel. We are not uh, uh, asking for new legislation. There is a legal framework within the UN uh, framework, and we're simply asking that the United General Assembly or the International Court of Justice to, uh, to clarify the obligations. Uh, expected or required by states, and that's simply uh, what we've been asking. Novanuatu, amongst many other Pacific Island countries, we're so vulnerable, and it's about our survival, it's about our livelihood, it's about the next generation. And I think this is a, a, a timely call that you know someone or a country that finally realized the importance of of uh, um, calling for uh, the ICJ to consider. And I think we have, uh, we have uh, obtained the support from many, many countries, and that's exactly one, 
what we would like to uh, achieve at the end of the day. Now, sir, the United States and China have not yet signed up as co-sponsors of this resolution, but that doesn't mean, of course, that they may not vote for it when it actually does come in front of the UN General Assembly. Uh, Have you had any recent discussions with these two great powers? They are, of course, the two largest polluters uh, on the planet. And are you hopeful that they will both vote yes when it does come to a vote? Uh, last uh, two or three days ago, uh, I had the opportunity to meet the uh, delegation from uh, the United States, and uh, my prime minister had, you know, frankly uh, request uh, the support on this uh, co-sponsoring the ICJ solutions. Unfortunately, they uh, were reluctant to take a stand on that, but uh, we have made every uh, attempt. I have written several uh, letters to China and even uh, through different discussions that we had, uh, simply asking if they could uh, uh, co-sponsor the uh, resolutions. Um, well, despite despite all the attempts that we have, but we believe that uh, we have reached a, a, a number for the, the, the consensus and we are hoping that China and the uh, U.S. will not probably raise their hand uh, to call for food because it's so embarrassing. I mean, whereas you have, you know, some of the major uh, uh, players that are coming on board and they have given their blessing, and we are hoping that they do the right thing. What do you think the message would be to the world from China and the United States if they were to abstain or even to vote no? Uh, I don't think I'll be able to answer that uh, that question. Uh, it's entirely up to them. But I mean, we have done everything uh, we could uh, to ask uh, for all the parties and all the member states to support the uh, ICT resolutions. And, and uh, simply, uh, we're asking uh, US and also the the China to consider this. It's about our survival. I mean, you know, we have to go back looking at the gen- next generation. You know, we should not be greedy. And uh, that's simply simply we're telling everybody that, you know, they should support this uh, resolution. That was Vanuatu's Foreign Minister, Jotham Napat, speaking there to the ABC's foreign affairs reporter, Stephen Judgetts. You're listening to Pacific Beat this Tuesday morning. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan. Is TikTok going to be banned? It's a question that has users of the social media site nervous after TikTok's CEO was grilled by the U.S. Congress over whether the app is a national security risk in America. Congressman, we do not do anything that is beyond any industry norms. The Chinese Communist Party is engaged in psychological warfare through TikTok to deliberately influence U.S. children. There are more than 150 million Americans who love our platform, and we know we have a responsibility to protect them. That was TikTok's CEO, Sho Si Chu, speaking to a United States congressman there. As you can hear, some U.S. politicians say TikTok, which is the world's fastest growing social media app, allows China to access private data. Both the company and the Chinese government deny this, though. But what does this mean for users of TikTok in the Pacific? And what ramifications would there be if the U.S. did ban it? A reporter, Jordan Fennell, spoke with Jope Torai, social media researcher and PhD candidate at the Australian National University, to find out more. 
the, the main issue here is an underlying issue of geostrategic contentions. And of course, as we see, the whole world is having to grapple with this because of the United States' own geostrategic insecurities. And within the Pacific, it's not seen as a matter of geostrategic contention. It's seen as another platform for people to express themselves. And it will be a disaster if the issue of having to ban a particular site will emerge in the Pacific, largely because the Pacific leaders before have had have tried in one way or the other to actually ban websites, sorry, social networking sites. For instance, I think Nauru uh, in, in the recent past had tried to uh, block Facebook and that created a whole uh, set of issues because there were claims of it limiting free speech, uh, media access. And so it will be very, very ironic if we come to a stage in our development as human beings where TikTok is going to be banned, but we can't raise the question or it will raise the question of freedom of expression. Uh, and so in the Pacific region, we've had our bouts of uh, banning websites. Uh, and of course, certainly the former prime minister of Samoa as well had threatened to ban Facebook. And again, the same accusations of limiting free speech uh, emerged. And so in this regard, the dynamics of what's happening is not only just strategic, it also poses a threat about limiting people's freedom of expression. And as I've said, the diversity of that ways in which we express ourselves is also perhaps under threat if this uh, geostrategic uh, contention continues to play out across all different areas and issues of focus. Um, you obviously watch social media really closely in the Pacific region, and that point that you just touched upon about how in the past um, a number of Pacific governments have tried to ban social media sites for a number of different reasons, but the criticism of that has been suppression of, of free speech. If the US does go ahead and ban TikTok um, and sets that precedent of being able to ban a social media app, from your perspective, I guess how would that impact then on Pacific leaders' decisions in an area that is already so tense when it comes to governments versus social media and free speech? I think it would be remiss of the Pacific if it were to follow that for the obvious reason that it will be following in a line of not only the question of hypocrisy, but also the aspect of being complicit in limiting the ways in which people can express themselves. And that is much deeper in terms of two particular reasons. The first one is the Pacific leadership has just endorsed the 2050 strategy as of last year. One of the key thematic areas that they all endorse collectively through the Pacific Island Forum is digital technology and connectivity. Having to go down the path of limiting a particular social networking site will particularly question that particular commitment uh, because it's connecting people. It's connecting diverse avenues of people's thoughts and, and views. And also because the Pacific has been criticized when it, or at least some Pacific leaders, had suggested blocking social networking sites like Facebook. Another aspect, apart from the regional uh, 2050 strategy, is also national strategies, national development plans in the Pacific also highlight the need for greater connectivity. And that's also, uh, well, I can only speak for Fiji in that regard, because Fiji has a national development plan, a 20-year plan from 2017 to 2036, I believe. And one of the key pillars, of course, is encouraging greater connectivity to uh, create entrepreneurship, innovation. And there's a lot of creativity that is unfolding within these landscapes. However so troubled they can be at times, it's not denying the fact that these are commitments, not only in terms of the uh, protection of free speech and, of course, citizens' uh, liberty uh, to uh, freely express themselves, but also because there are tied agreements, uh, or if not at least plans, 
that are already in place. Obviously, one of the reasons why the US is currently focusing on this is their concerns around the data that's being harvested by TikTok and then being fed back into China. When a person in the Pacific is using TikTok, what data would TikTok be harvesting about them? So first and foremost, I think it's appropriate that we understand that TikTok is not the only one that has access to data. All of the social networking sites, everything that we use online, our data footprint is effectively no longer uh, restricted by us. What effectively the concern that has been raised is that TikTok might be used in certain ways by competing governments for certain things. But I have to emphasize that there isn't enough evidence to suggest that that can be the case. And what kind of data it basically is about, just like what social other social networking sites uh, use, what you're communicating, where you're communicating from, what are you saying, what are the topics that you're talking about, what are the most searched uh, topics that you look up for or look out for, um, and all of that uh, in itself uh, is is taken. How I think the issue here is not so much the social networking sites, it's about the data, how the data is used. If the data is used in an unscrupulous manner, then that becomes an issue, regardless of what country, regardless of what technological company. As this case continues to unfold, what are some of the key areas that you are going to be watching? So part of my research that I do here in ANU looks at digital ethnography. Uh, and in that particular line of work, I'm, I'm fascinated by how people use technology and how these things are interacting with our daily lives and how we are responding to it. Clearly, what I'll be looking for in the next couple of uh, months or maybe weeks is whether the United States is going to actually follow through and deny 150 million users in its country access to a platform that is not only about expressing themselves, but a platform that embodies an extension of their identity. There's an identity that uh, everybody has to technology. I've been following these issues for quite a while, and it's brought me from collaborative work with various other researchers and now to a new. And one of the things that I, I, I kind of try to understand is, uh, or see now is that there's a need for greater research. For instance, last year I was collecting data online and noticed that the Chinese state media was very much an active uh, platform or, or Facebook page that young people in Papua New Guinea were actively using. And it became a top 10 uh, page, most searched page. And I found that quite interesting last year uh, because of the fact that that was in the lead up to PNG's elections. Uh, and so I had written in that particular blog piece that this deserves great examination. So I think my final sentiment would be there's a need for greater support for digital research within the political arena because of the fact that the frontier that we're going to see now, especially in public diplomacy, soft power, is effectively digital and it's going to target uh, young people. You're going to be uh, having a competition over attention and, of course, uh, focus. And considering that the Pacific has at least around estimated over 60% of the population are young people, this is going to become a crucial site uh, or area of focus that perhaps needs more research and focus. That was Australian National University's Joe Torai speaking there to reporter Jordan Fennell. 
Inzane Rugby League on ABC Radio Australia. Hosted by ABC Sport commentator Zane Bojack, Inzane Rugby League is a weekly look at the lighter side of rugby league, featuring game insights, latest news and interviews with rugby league legends and from around the edges. So close to the action, you can almost taste the turf. Inzane Rugby League, Tuesday nights at 6pm PNG time on ABC Radio Australia, your home of rugby league in the Pacific. Now it's that time of Pacific Beat where we find out what's making headlines around the region. And to do that, we're joined as always by Kyle Evans. Good morning, Kyle. Good morning, Priyanka. Now let's head to Fiji. We've been following that, um, well, quite quite um, interesting, I shall say, uh, step down by former Prime Minister Frank Bainimarama. Uh, discussions are now in place for a new opposition leader after uh, he left that position. That could take place this week. Is that right? Who's in contention? Yeah, that's right. So basically the business committee uh, in parliament is expected to discuss the appointment, uh, according to Prime Minister Sidovani Rambuka, uh, which would replace um, Frank Bainimarama, who obviously resigned last month. So this is reported by FBC, uh, and Rambuka said the appointment could be brought to the table uh, by the Speaker of Parliament as early as Wednesday or Thursday. And uh, Rambuka has confirmed that the government will not oppose the nomination uh, made by the opposition, um, uh, regardless of who that is, but uh, no word yet on, on who the successor might be. Yes, I'm sure talks are underway to find out which which MP or which, which politician would take that spot. Um, will be very interesting. I guess stay tuned and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll bring you the latest here on, on ABC Radio Australia once that d- does get called, but it'll be interesting. I guess, it feels like Fiji is sort of entering this new phase of mm. politics, new faces potentially, um, particularly after Bainimarama's, I guess, prominence in Fiji politics for, for so long, for, for 16 years, uh, if not longer. Uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what a new opposition will look like under under a new um, new leaders as well. So. Yeah, I'd be in- interested to know behind closed doors how many people are putting their hand up for that role. That's true. It seems like a, it would be a tense thing to do, particularly succeeding uh, someone like Frank Bainimarama. Um, who has, yes, quite, quite a controversial history. Uh, it would be interesting to see who his successor might be and, and what sort of um, politics they, they want to mm. put forward as leader of, of, um, of Fiji First. So very, very interesting. We shall keep an eye on what happens there and, and bring you the latest, as I said, here on ABC Radio Australia. Um, now let's head to New Caledonia. Again, we've reported um, this year over those fatal at times but quite violent shock attacks that happened. I believe there were three shock attacks, um, at least three, in, in New Caledonia's I beaches. I so, yes. Yeah. Um, one, of course, led to that tragic death of, of an Australian t- tourist. Now beachgoers are protesting closures of Numia's swing beaches as a result of these attacks. Why the protests? Isn't keeping them safe? Yes, yeah, so I, I must admit this one really did shock me. So it, it appears the mayor has, uh, has made the decision to close Numia's beaches until the end of the year uh, because of that spate of shark attacks, uh, including that fatal mauling uh, of that Australian swimmer. So uh, this is reported uh, by a number of outlets. I got this from the island business uh, and they said about 100 people formed a chain along the beach uh, denouncing the plan as discriminatory. Uh, discriminatory. Um, but they also took particular issue with the fact 
that uh, kite surfers and windsurfers um, are immune to this ban and they're allowed to continue what they do just at their own risk. Yes, yes. And I guess that's why they're calling it discriminatory because, you know, swimmers aren't allowed to swim in the beaches, whereas um, other, other you know, beachgoers like kite surfers, windsurfers um, are allowed to be there. I, I guess that decision is made. Perhaps you're more vulnerable to sharks if you're if you're just sort of, you know, in 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 the water with with just your um I don't know speedos, you're just your bikini <laughs> keeping you <laughs> keeping you, between you and the shark whereas I guess kite surfers and windsurfers might have a bit more protection or maybe the flurry of the water scares sharks off? I don't know. Yeah, I'm not sure. Look, I'd love to hear hear the logic behind it, but I'm more just shocked at the decision. Um, I mean, not so much to close the beaches initially, but to close them for the rest of the year. I mean, it's only March. I mean, that's that's a long time to, to close the beaches of, a, of an idyllic Pacific Island country, which heavily relies on tourism. I imagine the, uh, you know, the hotels and the accommodation sector probably wouldn't be too impressed about this decision. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's a baffling one for me. Yeah, and it's interesting that I do know that the um, beach that this protest that you mentioned took place is um, Baie de Citron or in Arnsvater, which is considered uh, quite a, a chic. It has a lot of the resorts, a lot of those big, you know, um, hotels are there. A lot of tourists come there as well. Um, so I can understand why that community in particular feels quite, um, I guess... Vulnerable. Yeah, vulnerable to this closure and, and also a bit annoyed that this happened. But then again, we have to provide the context here and it is following these shark attacks, which have been quite serious and have actually scared off probably a mm. lot of tourists to Numia as well. So, uh, yeah, you, you feel for the government who, who do probably need to have this balancing balancing act to, to show that they're doing something. Um, I know they had a big culling campaign as well, isn't that right? Yeah, well, according to the reports, uh, in the last month, uh, 40 sharks uh, have been culled uh, near and around uh, Numia's beaches, which you know seems like a lot of sharks. And that obviously follows the rules to take, uh, I believe they did this a while ago, but to take bull sharks and tiger sharks off that in endangered species list as well. So mm. they've definitely made some moves on that front. Yes, yeah. Um, yes, in some parts of the the country, they have made that decision. Yeah, it's very, very interesting. It's a um, yeah fascinating topic, particularly because we, we had on the show a, a Pacific shark expert who, who sort of said that this, these culling campaigns, this sort of, um, you know, what, what he would term, I guess, uh, over overreaction to these um, shark bites, um, doesn't really address the problem. He no. says that it's, you know, one shark and apparently they've caught the shark that may, may have been behind those attacks. So, yeah, very interesting. A lot of conflicting views on this. And, and as, as you said, um, Kyle, a lot of people in Numia aren't, aren't very happy in, with this. Um, so, yeah, interesting to keep keep an eye on this and see maybe if the government does turn, turn their back on it and maybe, uh, you know, lessen the, the length of that ban on, on swimming in Numia's beaches. Um, let's head to some soccer news now. The Trian Nations International Friendly Series has come to a close in Fiji. Who won? Who lifted the trophy? Yeah, so the Solomon Islands have uh, won the series, uh, continuing their unbeaten run with a 2-0 victory uh, over the Fiji senior side on Sunday. So uh, this is reported by the Fiji Times, uh, and it was actually the Solomons' first win over Fiji in 12 years, which wow. somewhat surprised me because the Sols, are, they're, they're pretty good at soccer. Uh, it was also their first ever award 
away win against the Buller boys as well. So uh, so stri- striker Kagame uh, Fenny, he scored both goals to lead the side uh, to victory. And uh, that actually wasn't the only big uh, soccer achievement to come out of the Solomon Islands in recent days. Oh, is that so? What else is there? Well, not so much out of the Solomon Islands. Let's say, let's say Europe. <laughs> um, but okay. uh, teen sensation uh, Raphael Leice, oh, yeah. uh, the Solomon Islands kid uh, who's, who's recently gone over there, he actually made his uh, professional debut uh, in European football. He uh, took the field back on March 20 for uh, his Bosnian club, uh, FK Vales Mostar, and uh, he entered the second half, making history in the process to become the first ever Solomon Islands player to play professionally in Europe. So Which is uh, massive. Massive congratulations to him. Yeah, and, and probably one of the few Pacific Islanders to play professionally in Europe, I imagine. Yeah, the list wouldn't be long, that's yeah, for sure. Yeah, well, great, great work to Raphael, and yes, you've got a whole region behind you, I guess. Uh, so, yeah, um, we'll, we'll be watching him him play out there for who did you say Velez Mostar the Bosnian club right that's right yeah Velez Mostar yes I hope I said that right <laughs> yes I'm sure we are oh, a Bosnian is, is up to scratch I'm sure here on Pacific <laughs> Beach Carl thank you for the stories thank you Pranka and you've got actually a story coming up I believe about um, a, a expedition to Papua New Guinea that's right. Uh, uh, blue water, meteors, aliens, it's, uh, it's got it <laughs> it's all. It's got it all, yep. yes, that's right. A, a physicist from Harvard, I believe, um, that you spoke to, Kyle, uh, has, is planning to head to Papua New Guinea to find what he believes is some fragments of a potential alien, well, something, artifact, um, or it could be a media that is entered the solar system. <laughs> we, but, what we you know, do know is that it is not from our solar system, which in itself... Yes, which is, yes, in itself quite quite striking. Um, off the coast of Manus Island, um, we'll take a listen to your interview with that physicist. You're listening to Pacific Beat this Tuesday morning. Could an alien object be hiding underwater off the coast of Manus in Papua New Guinea? That's the theory of Harvard physicist Avi Loeb, who's leading an expedition to the island to try and, un- and to try and uncover a meteor that landed there in 2014. It was the first very rare interstellar meteorite ever documented to hit Earth, and that has scientists like Avi thinking there's a chance it could be artificially made. Carl Evans spoke to the physicist who told him why he thinks the media might actually be a relic of an alien civilization. Well, it's actually the first object that was identified by humans uh, from outside the solar system. It was discovered on January 8, uh, 2014, by uh, the U.S. government, uh, which monitors the atmosphere for ballistic missiles, any national security risks. And uh, every now and then they see an object colliding with Earth. Uh, Usually these are rocks from the solar system and they just document them. So there is a meteor catalog and together with my student Tamir Siraj, we looked back at all the meteors that were recorded over the past decade and uh, it turns out that one of them from 2014 was moving too fast to be bound to the sun. We were able to extrapolate back in time its speed and we found that it came from outside the solar system, and it was moving actually faster than 95% of all the stars in the vicinity of the sun. So we wrote a paper about it, and the U.S. government confirmed this identification and uh, the 99.999% confidence, and moreover, released data about the, the fireball that was created when the meteor exploded 10 kilometers above the sea level. And we were able to analyze it and infer that uh, it had material strength that is 
higher by at least a factor of 10 than all other meteors ever recorded in the same catalog, 272 of them. And so why would the first interstellar object that came from outside the solar system be tougher than all the space rock we had seen? And uh, there are two possibilities. One is that uh, it originated from some unusual source, very different from the solar system, and it's natural in origin, or that it's actually uh, artificially made. It was produced by another civilization out there and collided with Earth by chance. Uh, The way that, for example, Voyager, the spacecraft that we launched into interstellar space, could in principle collide with an exoplanet. Wow. So uh, are you basically saying that if it in fact is an alien artifact, that it might be made from some sort of material that is what, unknown to our civilization, to our planet? It could be, for example, stainless steel, a very tough material, much tougher than iron. So it could be artificial in origin, but uh, something that in principle, either we produce so that we can produce in principle, but um, what we are trying to do is collect the fragments left over from the explosion of this meteor and we identify the location and uh, we're planning an expedition that uh, will cost one and a half million dollars. We are developing the machinery and we know where to go and it will take a couple of weeks and we just hope to, to find some small fragments the size of a millimeter or so, so the, like the head of a pin. And we just need a small number of them, maybe 10 or up to 100, in order to figure out the composition. And uh, that would be very exciting because it's the first time humans put their hand on an object that came from outside the solar system. Yeah, it sounds incredible. We'll get to the search in just a second, just just on this object. So when it actually entered the Earth's atmosphere, how big was this object? Did it make quite a splash when it landed off the coast of PNG, or was it relatively small? What kind of scale are we talking about? It was about half a meter in size, so just like a giant watermelon. Uh, not very big, uh, and it released a few percent of the Hiroshima atomic bomb energy. Every year, there is an object roughly the size of a person, two meters in, in diameter, that collides with Earth, and usually it's a rock from the solar system, and that releases as much as the Hiroshima bomb. So we have a collision like that every year, and it happens high in the atmosphere, about about uh, 30 kilometers up, and it doesn't cause any damage, and it's not noticed very often because it's over the ocean. This one was different in the sense that the object moved much faster than solar system objects, and also it had material strength that allowed it to go relatively low in the atmosphere. Yeah, unbelievable. So the size of a, mo- a watermelon, like you mentioned, it's, it's landed essentially in the middle of the ocean. I, I imagine it's probably going to be like finding a needle in, in, in a haystack. Um, how are you well, going to uh, search for this? Yeah, you're right that the government data uh, provided a, a very large margin regarding the location, and uh, it was 10 kilometer by 10 kilometer, and it would have been hopeless to find any relic from it. But uh, we were able to localize it much better than that using seismometer data on Manus Island, and from that we were able to pinpoint the uh, the distance for where where it happened to within a kilometer. And the question is, you know, if we find something as big as that, it's sufficient to have one <laughs> to, to figure out what it was made of. And uh, I already promised uh, the curator of the Museum of Modern Art in New York City that if if we ever find anything, 
we can put it on display there because it would represent modernity for us to find something that an advanced civilization produced. They, they were probably more advanced than we are. And just on the project itself, $1.5 million, it's, it's definitely no small amount of money. Uh, is this funded by Harvard? No, no. It's funded by an individual that um, it provided funds to my research at Harvard. And basically, I wrote a book called Extraterrestrial a couple of years ago, and it received a lot of attention, the first book. And some wealthy individuals came to the porch of my home and offered me research funds. I didn't do any fundraising. And in this particular case, uh, you know, someone came forward and said, here is the money needed for the expedition. You mentioned before that it'll be going to the Museum of Modern History. Will you try and engage with Papua New Guinea at all to see if they want to get oh, in yeah. on the action or anything? No, no. Yes, we have some partners at Papua New Guinea. And just like any scientific material, it will be available for anyone to use. It will not be used for any commercial purpose. And we will make it available. And all the findings uh, will be shared by all scientists worldwide and of course, with anyone in Papua New Guinea who is interested in studying it, and we have some some partners there. And Avi, just lastly before we go, just out of curiosity more than anything, it feels like culturally, you know, the, the talk of aliens and UFOs, it, it's really come back to the forefront of society in a big way. You've written a number of books on the subject. You're obviously a, a very qualified person. What's your personal opinion? Are we Are we approaching a time, do you think, where that first contact could be made? Yeah, I, I think... Um What's different now is that uh, for the past 70 years, we've been searching for radio signals. And uh, that's just like waiting for a phone call at home. You need the counterpart to be active, to call you. And there may not be anyone calling you when you're listening, waiting for that. Uh, whereas the, the new approach that uh, I'm pioneering with the Galileo project that I'm leading and, and also this expedition is to look for any packages that might be in our mailbox. And the, the sender may not be alive. You don't need the sender to be active when you're looking for it. So it's a completely different search method than looking for objects, physical objects that are near Earth. That was a professor of science at Harvard University, Avi Loeb, speaking there to reporter Kyle Evans. You're listening to Pacific Beat. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan. And have you ever had to organize the music for a big family get-together and be faced with the eternal struggle? How do you find music that can get your aunties, your nieces and nephews, your 80-year-old grandparents, the whole intergenerational clan, get it to get them on the dance floor and dancing? Well, a new show from ABC Radio Australia, In the Fale, has got you covered. And at the helm is Hao Latakefu, who joins us now. Good morning to you, Hao. Good morning. How are you? Yes, very well. And excited to hear about this new show, In the Fale. It started, I believe, just last week. And mm. I understand your, your attempt is to cross the generations with the music of your show. How are you <laughs> choosing the music? What are the vibes? A lot of the vibes are taken from, you know, just growing up as a kid. Um, we'd have these house parties or gatherings and, you know, the, the parents would play their tunes and, you know, the grandparents and, and obviously then it was the kids' turn and kids' turns are always, you know, the cooler music with the <laughs> hip-hop and R&B and reggae and the parents would always um, have traditional uh, Tongan songs or hymns. But also, you know, my dad was a, a big fan of country. 
So that, yeah, and you know, my cousin, she's an opera singer, and other cousins are like jazz and reggae singers. So it really was a mixture, and um, I kind of draw inspiration from from those um, times, but also mix it up with you know uh, songs that have just come out as well. So it really is a mixture of eras and genres, um, like you, and like you said, intergenerational. Yeah, so quite eclectic, it sounds like, a lot of diversity yeah. of sounds. I mean, is there a risk here? I, I always find that when I'm trying to, you know, make music for other people, particularly if they have different tastes, that you don't want to put the, you know, country yeah, fans of off the hip-hop. Yeah, is there a bit of pressure? How do you make the choice? Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Like when you're in the car and no one wants to take yes. the ox because they don't want to offend anyone. I, you know, I think you just do it with confidence, you know, and I think you do it as a music fan and, and someone that really appreciates music of all, you know, like I said, like all genres and all eras, you know, and I think there's something I, I always seem to find something I like in, in every type of music. Um, you know, I might not wholeheartedly stand by it, but I can appreciate <laughs> it. So um, the show is very much like that, you know, it's showing that, because, you know, hip-hop is my first love, you know, I, mm-hmm. that's that's the music I fell in love with. So, there's, you know, obviously a hip-hop thread throughout it, but but really, i just a music fan at heart. So are you one of those people, how who can sort of listen to any genre of music and, and sort of find find your jam and find what you're looking for? Yeah, I, I, feel, I feel I am. You know, even with some hardcore, like, metal or something, I can, you know, it's probably nothing that I would pump at home, <laughs> but it'd be like, oh, okay, I get it. I get why people like this. And you can appreciate the uh, musicality of it. Um, but, you know, I also just want to keep it fun, you know, because mm. for years on Triple J, it was strictly hip-hop, and on Double J, I'm playing a mix of hip-hop and soul. But this show, I get to really um, play, you know, like folk to hip-hop to country to classical um, and yeah, just keep it open and fun. Yeah, yeah. And it is In the Fale, the, the name of this new show. Mm. Well, what does it mean, In the Fale? Yeah, so Fale in, in, in Tongan and in Samoa too, I believe, you know, it's like the house, like the place we live or, or you gather. And, you know, in hip hop terms, you always say, like, oh, I'm in the house, you know, like to show somebody that you've arrived. So I kind of mixed up the two with In the Fale and kind of have the Pacifical flavor uh, as well as the hip-hop flavor and title. Yes. And I guess, does that mirror sort of your upbringing as well? I mean, you're, you're Tongan and Australian. You've got this, you know, hip-hop background. You front, you know, um, a hip-hop, um, I guess, you're the front men of Coolism, a hip-hop group. Um, mm. So how do you feel about um, the mixture? What, how did that influence your, your taste being Tongan, Australian, having this hip-hop? Are there any memories from your youth that, that sort of um, define your music journey? Um, I think it is that. Just having, you know, I was born in Australia and my parents came in the 60s and I think it was just having that mix uh, which kind of made my taste and appreciation for music a lot different to my peers in in Australia. And and when I started making hip-hop music, I, I would draw inspiration from that and that would differentiate us from a lot of the groups so, uh, yeah, just the upbringing with the families and, you know, the older cousins and my older sister, you know, when you're the young one, you kind of always follow mm-hmm. what they're doing. And, and they were already well-versed in hip-hop and R&B and reggae and jazz, so I would follow them. And and, and from the, from those times to now, you know, just 
been curious, been on the search for like new genres. I'm not one of those people from the nineties and oh music is not the same. <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> but, you know, I, I love music just as much as you know music from back music from now as much as I do from from back then. So I'm always curious, just always on the search for new sounds, but also appreciating um, the music and the artists that that laid the foundations. Yeah, and I always, because I have a similar thing where my family really, I guess, defined the music I listen to now. I always feel sorry for the new generation who I feel, it seems, as an outsider, might have quite isolated music tastes, you know, with their Spotify, their YouTube and Mm. stuff. Um, Do you see that as well as part of your role, you know, DJing, being part of this new show, is also trying to, you know, open open people's ears for for music that exists outside, outside their phone, maybe? Yeah, it's interesting, you know, because I think when I was coming up, you if you, you pretty much listen to one type of genre, like ah, oh, and you could tell, like oh, this person listens to hip hop, this person listens to rock or whatever. But it's interesting that the new generations now are, are genreless because of streaming platforms, because of social media, especially TikTok. Um, the young generations just like music, mm. you know, not necessarily. A genre specific. They'll listen to anything that comes across, you know, their social media or you know, on, on streaming platforms. So it's really interesting. They're a lot more open-minded than I think than I was as a kid. It's like, oh no, nah, I just want to listen to hip hop. That's all I want to listen to. But kids nowadays will listen to everything. So I think a show like this would be, you know, would would be great for them. Yes, yes. I think it's more for the for the oldies, you know. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> have a listen to this. You might like this as well. <laughs> yes, yes. Oh, well, that's that's an interesting. Well, keeping ahead of the times, how how I guess, or <laughs> you know, with your with your new show in the far late. Now. I did want to put your DJing skills to the test here on Pacific Beat, okay. How, if you're keen. Yeah, I wanted, okay. Because, you know, your show is all about, you know, uh, having new people listen to some new music. So I wanted to have listeners and, and yourself, How, imagine you're at a house party. So you're, you're the DJ of this house party. And now you suddenly hear a knock at the door and you open it up. And lo and behold, it's the Tongan king and queen there at the oh, party. Wow. They want to get down. They want to boogie. They want to be part of your your club, the How Club. What song do you start spinning for them? Yeah, wow, that, that would be a task. Um, my parents probably not say not to play anything just to get out of the house. But you know, for for the sake of this game, I'd, I'd say it has to be something universal, like yeah, like celebration. You know what I mean? Or yes. like some you know, Tommy Gang or, or Earth Wind Fire. Something that is uplifting. Um, I like and something it. that you, yeah, you'd feel that they would have come across on their travels. Yes, and, you know, even if you don't know the song, it's, it, it's upbeat. You know, it's inclusive, so and it'll, it'll set the vibe right. Yes, okay, I, I like that. I like that idea. Um, <laughs> and one more, a quick one. You've got you hear another knock, and it's your Zoominis. And actually, it's different. I guess it's different from what you think. She has a hoodie down. She's staring at TikTok on her phone. What do you play to get her jiving with the rest of the family? First, tell her to put the phone down. <laughs> um, probably play something like play something like Blackpink or something like. Oh, my nice! Uses, you know, like some K-pop that's yes, that's a lot of fun and funky and up tempo and and just a lot of energy. 
I think that would uh, get get her attention. Love it, love it. Some uh, K-pop and some classic Cool in the Glang gang for the Tongue and King <laughs> yeah. and Queen. There, it sounds like a great house party. And well, the, and that's the, that's the show in a nutshell, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I was going to say, if you want to be part of house music party, your house party in the Fale, it runs. Is it is it every Saturday? Is that right? Um, or uh, every, Friday. every Friday? Yeah. Two p.m. at PNG time. How? Thank you so much for your time this morning on Pacific Beat. Uh, pleasure, pleasure. Thank you. That was How Latu Kefu. And as he said, In the Fale will be uh, airing every 2 p.m. PNG time every Friday here on ABC Radio Australia. Do check it out. It also replays online. And you can be able to hear Pacific Beat online. Uh, keep well. Have a lovely day.